Welcome, everybody, and we're back with another Hollywood Godfather podcast. Nothing pleases me more than come on and talking to you people about everything in the world. I mean, we've been touching on a lot of stuff. What, what, what are you, after 112 hours or some crazy number now? This is 113, yeah. Whoa, what a guess. What a lucky number. Yeah. And one, one of the specialties that we do, as you know, if you follow us, we like talking about mentors. And tonight, I, I thought we'd switch it up a little bit because we've been talking about my mentors. And uh, I just felt, uh, I'd like to know who nurtured my friend and, and co-writer, Pat, especially, well, I'm not, I want to hear. So, Pat, we're going to put you on the spot. Okay. We need, uh, who guided you along and, and impressed well, you? Well, I tell you, you know, uh, you and I are getting on in years. We have a long way to go, but throughout our lives, we've, I know you've had a lot of people who, who've guided you, and so have I. So when uh, you and I were discussing the theme of the show, I decided to pick a few out to come to mind. Uh, three people and uh, possibly a fourth, but uh, uh, first and foremost would be my father. Uh, my father died uh, when I was young. I was 14. Oh, wow. Uh, but we had a good relationship. Uh, just to give some background, uh, he uh, never went to school. Uh, I, I think he made it to the second grade. And uh, to quote him, he said, enough was enough. <laughs> he had a lot of siblings. This was He was a uh, first-generation American. His, uh, his parents were born in Italy. They came here, and they lived on the Lower East Side. And I lived in, in that apartment when I was born. Uh, but, uh, you know, Italians of that generation, or anybody of that generation, were extremely hard workers. And my father was in all kinds of businesses. Uh, he owned, uh, this was before I came along. He was, uh, he owned a funeral home in Brooklyn. He owned a limousine service. He owned all kinds of things. Uh, he was a voracious reader. Uh, for somebody who didn't go to school. I was just going to say how to learn how to read. Wow. He taught himself. And uh, this is where I got my love of books. Because the man would literally read anything. Uh, we'd go out to eat occasionally or, uh, or over at his mom's house. His, his, uh, his mother lived my grandmother lived uh, uh, well into her 90s or early 100s. Not what it was. And she used to stay home and cook all day. That's all she did. But we'd, we'd be sitting at the table. And uh, absentmindedly, he'd be reading a pasta box. You know, the writing on a pasta box, soup cans. Oh, he'd read anything. Okay. Anything. He he used to used to devour books. He was, he, he was never, he'd never go anywhere without a book. And this is something wow. that I learned from him. Uh, you know, now in the age of Kindle and audio books and, and all that, but I never go anywhere, literally never go anywhere without a book. You know, people can't stand going to the doctor's office or going to the dentist because they have to wait. You have a one o'clock appointment. They don't take you to three. They bitch. They complain. I actually look forward to it because I catch up on my reading. I go to court and you're not supposed to bring reading material with you. So I sit in the back, you know, waiting my turn or outside till they call me. And I have a book on my lap. I'm always reading, always reading. And I got that from him. And of course, always reading led to my writing career. I mean, I never took a, a class in writing. I don't know. I mean, the first thing I ever wrote that got published other than, you know, I mean, I, I, I wrote my first book before that. 
The only thing I ever wrote was a shopping list. I never wrote anything. Oh. I down and, and got an idea and I wrote. And uh, I, I got that from my dad. And, you know, he would always, uh, he, he would, you know, tell me things. This is a long time ago. She's been dead 60 years. Wow. I think uh, a, a day goes by, or maybe a day, but hardly two days when I don't think of him and uh, things that he told me. Odd things at the time. Uh, and I just, I scratched my head. I'm eight years old. What do I know? But when I think back on him, for instance, he would uh, tell me the, the best trait you can have in the world and the best trait of uh, from people you're going to pick as friends is loyalty. And, you know, when you're eight years old, well, well, you know, what do you know from uh, uh, loyalty? Your friends are your friends. Right. Of course, you know, they're not going to be your friends anymore. But I found as I as I went through life that he was absolutely right. I don't care who you are. I still maintain friendships with uh, 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 people that I've known since I've been a kid. Really? I do. Most of them didn't lead such stellar lives or successful lives. They're still driving cabs and doing what they have to do. But they're loyal. They're good friends. And, you know, I, I think back on the books that I wrote, and they all have one theme in them, all of them, including yours, Johnny, is loyalty. That's the theme of your book and every other book I ever wrote, whether it be fiction or nonfiction. So to me, loyalty is everything. And subconsciously, I seek that out in the subjects uh, that I'm going to write about or the ideas I get if I'm, if I'm writing fiction. And that comes from my dad. He also had these little witticisms, for lack of a better term, that, that he would tell me. And one thing he taught me that was a definite truism. Don't make any important decisions at night. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Think about that. Yeah. And it works because uh, I tested it out. And, you know, if I, if I want to uh, make a, a, an investment in a car or something, or I have to make a, a career decision, I've made them at night. And they weren't good decisions for the most part. <laughs> when I, well, you I, think you learned by the first one. <laughs> like, like I, we mentioned this last week, I volunteered for Vietnam. I guarantee you I made that after a, a couple <laughs> At night, a, a friend of mine and I were 18 years old. And we said, well, what do you want to do tomorrow? Well, let's join the Army. So wow. We hungover, and we joined the Army, and then we volunteered for Vietnam together. And was that spontaneous? You didn't think it over for weeks that was or spontaneous. No, well, no, well, thinking about no, I just as I mentioned last week, I'm not, you know, I didn't think about patriotism or, or the the uh, political end of the Vietnam War. I'm a, I'm a young man who, you know, we we historically mature a lot later than than our female counterparts do at the same age. We're 25 years old and we're still kids. Uh, Easy for it, you to say. <laughs> well, this was an immature decision because I, truthfully, I wanted to blow shit up. I didn't care about politics. I didn't care. I wanted the adventure. I wanted the excitement. And as soon as my feet hit the tarmac at Tansanud Air Base, which is the, the air base outside of Saigon, I said, what the hell did I do? You know, I'm, I'm getting off the plane. They're putting body bags on the plane. And there were bodies in those bags. Wow. For treatment. You know, I know I'm, go I'm what I'm going to see, and that I had to make that decision at night. He also told me 
about style. Uh, Johnny, you and I used to go to the to the same store on Broadway. Layton's. Uh, Layton's. I love Layton's. Yeah. I mean, I, I would save money to go there to buy shoes. Oh, yeah. Uh, those of you who don't know, I believe it was on like 47th Street, 46th yeah, Street, yeah. west side of Broadway. And, uh, you know, people window shop. Guys don't generally do that. But uh, my, my father gave me a style sense and not fashion sense. Fashion comes and goes, but style is forever. You look at old old pictures of uh, Cary Grant, for example. The guy had style. If he was still alive today, Fred Astaire, Frank Costello, these people had style. They yep. would have it now. They had it 50 years ago. Yep. So he, he, instilled, he instilled that in me. And I used to go to Layton's and, and window shop. And I'd say, boy, when I, when I get a couple of bucks, I'm buying this, I'm buying that. And I would. I would save up for it. And I, would, I, always, I always dress well. Sometimes I, I overspent. Uh, but he always gave me that, 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 uh, that sense of style. He, he says, it's not the way you look. It's the way it makes you feel. And okay. I found that if, if I'm not feeling well, psychologically, I'm depressed or something, if I dress well that day, you know, if, if, if you're depressed, you're, you're content with hanging around your, your house and your jammies and watching TV all day. If I'm feeling like that for too long, like two days in a row, I'll dress. I'm not talking about suit and tie, but I'll put on decent clothes, spit shine shoes, and, and it'll, it'll, it'll lift my mood. That's, so, that's interesting. You know, I, I, I don't get depressed. Is that weird? Nope. I know what you mean, though, Pat. Like, even I felt that way during quarantine. You just feel a bit down. And it's like, look good, feel good. You put on an outfit that makes you feel good, and it completely changes your mood. Yeah, with this quarantine, uh, after the first couple of weeks, I was starting to get into that bad place, you know? I mean, you don't care what you mm -hmm. I figured I'm going to dress every morning as if I was going somewhere to work or where to teach, you know, and that's what I, that's what I would do. I would, I would dress well and you feel better that way. And I, I have this, yeah. you know, I, I go out to dinner with my wife or my friends or, or whatever. And I see people taking out their girlfriends or their wives, these, these men, they look like they rolled out of bed and I'm not generalizing. But that's I'm more saying. now than ever. I see. Oh that's yeah. Crazy. Most people. The women... They don't get all dressed. The women are always dressed. Yes, they look good. I mean, you don't have to be fancy. You got to look good, clean, right. pressed, you know, put some makeup on. They all do it, you know, but men, backwards baseball cap. Sports, oh, my God. Sports jerseys. If I ever saw my kid wearing a Steelers shirt, I'm going to have to write him out of my will. You know, <laughs> that's not that's not what I was taught, you know, and it, it's it's... That's anyway, great, though. And, he, and you pass, style. Did you pass it on to your sons? Uh, no, I tried, didn't work. Uh, <laughs> you, you know my sons. Zach is—he's uh, one in a million. He's extremely bright, uh, very personable. Got a million friends. He's in medical school. Got everything going for him. Doesn't care about anything material. Literally, I wanted to give him a car. Would not take it. Wow. Uh, he says. I live in Pittsburgh, but he's got his own place, uh, close to the school. He said, I can't park the damn thing. I'd have to hunt for an hour to find it. I just don't need it. There's buses here, public transportation. I'm content with it. You're smart. Now, I've, got a, I've got a Rolex president that a, that a client gave me, a, a, 
Are you familiar with the watch? Not very Johnny? much so. All right, solid gold. This thing, I just I just looked at it, uh, the, the price on it. Used, they're going for between 20 and 25K. Oh, yeah. I, I want to give him this watch when he graduates uh, medical school, which will be in about two years. But I wanted to tell him first, uh, you know, I don't want to spring it on him. He doesn't want the watch. And I said, I think every doctor should have a Rolex. That's just me. You know, I... I <laughs> But he said, you know, not that he's not going to take it, but he was, he was very impressed and very thankful. But I, I, I know he's going to be afraid to wear the thing. That's, That's the, the other problem, you know. Yeah, well, and, and as far as... And you uh, would feel terrible if, God forbid, he got <laughs> mugged because he wore your watch. Yeah, there you go. Hello. Uh, but but as, far as, as far as clothes, he's not like me and either is Alex. Uh, well. You know, different generation, Gianni. It's not... Oh, I have five different generations. I'm witnessing them all. Yeah. I mean, My oldest no, is 56. So answer your question. No, they're, they're not. I mean, they're, they're neat, they're, they're clean, but they can wear uh, shoes. You know, when they have to go somewhere for a, an interview or a funeral, they borrow my shoes. All they wear is sneakers. Really? Wow. Fortunately, we're the same size. Wow, that's amazing. If you, if you scuff this shoe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and uh, the and the last thing before I I, uh, I move on, he was always very uh, vocal about this. Keep your word. Oh yeah, that was something. My life was on that. Exactly. Keep, it was one of the reasons you're. That's still the old timers. The old timers. That's what they yeah, said. Yeah, right. But you, you you'll have to admit, Johnny, this is one of the reasons you're still here. Oh me, that was it. Without a doubt. Without if, a doubt. If you say the the. Say something, uh, uh, say anything. Uh, if you're supposed to do something, even if it's minor, you do it. Yep. If you can't do it for some reason, you explain why you can't do it. Right. You know, always keep your word. And I, I, I recall when he died, it was sudden heart attack. He was 59. Uh, he used to lend money to everybody. Now, mm -hmm. I didn't know this. Now, now, should we let them know that he also had a bar? Oh, he had, yeah, he had a bar. Was he laying the money there, lending the money there? That's what normally happens, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, well, he was a soft touch, you know, and anybody that has soft story, he would, uh, he would, you know, lend them, I'm using air quotes here. Right. And uh, when he died, my, uh, uh, he never had insurance, life insurance. My uh, mother would say in the forthcoming weeks, he said, you know, all those people who your dad lent uh, money to, we're never going to see it. And then the bell started ringing. Like six months after that, people come into my house with sacks full of money. Wow. And, now, that's wow. not everybody, of course. But, but sacks, sacks is pretty impressive. <laughs> well, well, I don't mean of, of a least size, but like a paper bag or an envelope. That's nice, though. You know, the, the kind of people that we grew up with, Johnny, you and I. Oh, yeah, hello. No one had a bank account. It was cash on the street. Yep. Anyway, they, they would show up and they would tell me the same thing. Your dad was the best guy in the world. You know, and here's, here's what he lent me. And I don't know how many people that didn't show up, but a lot did. Yeah. And the testament to what he taught me. He lived by what he taught me. That's great. That was my father. Wow, that's amazing. Then the second right. guy. Uh, Pat, before we get into that, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Gianni, you want to send us off for a quick commercial break? Please, please. We'll be right back. Don't go nowhere.
We're going to find out who Pat's next mentor is. Be right back. Today's show is being sponsored by Corleone Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Corleone Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco Extra Virgin Olive Oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneFineItalian.com That's CorleoneFineItalian.com Okay, we're back. I can't wait to hear who your second mentor is. Okay, this guy, If you, I don't even know if he's still alive, but uh, <clears throat> uh, Blair Anthony, sergeant. Maybe he's listening to this podcast. Maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll reach out. Oh, that would uh, be great if he would. If you are, Blair, call us in. I mean, yeah, send us. I, I, uh, like I said, I, I volunteered to Vietnam, and I was young and stupid. But my goal when I got there was to be old and stupid. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who, want, who wants to die when you're 18 years old? I, Hello. Think I, just turned, I just turned 19 when I was there, and I realized what I did. You know what? I, and you know when you when you go to Vietnam, you've got a year to do, 365 days, and you leave, one way or another. You leave the, you leave walking or you leave being carried out of there. And everybody carries around is what they call short time calendars. You put these little X's every day. Anyway, I I, I get to my uh, my uh, infantry unit, and uh, we had problems right from the outset. We were involved in a in an ambush situation. But anyway, I I had a had a, uh, a rifle, an M16, and they had just come out, and the things didn't work. Oh, my God. You pull the trigger, oh, it went click instead of boom. They couldn't, uh, the, the, the rifles themselves couldn't handle the humidity, the heat, and but it was too late. We had them, so I said. So what you are know, you going to use as a weapon? You, well, if they came close enough, you can beat them to death with it. But other than that, <laughs> you stuck. And this is the First day on 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 uh, on patrol, somebody command detonated a mine. We're walking on a rice paddy. Not to get too much into it, but the guy that command detonated, in other words, the, the enemy was watching the enemy us walk along this rice paddy dike, and he forgot where he planted the mine, which was good for us because we had already walked past it when he command detonated it. Otherwise, he's got it like a switch box, right. and he turns it and goes boom. We were already past it, so nobody got hurt. But we uh, we jumped into that filthy rice paddy water, and we started shooting into the wood line because that was the only place the guy could hide. I pull the trigger, and the gun goes click. Brand new rifle. And I said to myself, self, wow. I can't do this. I'm, I'm not going to handle any kind of a weapon that, that I can't depend on. So this Sergeant Anthony, who was our squad leader, young guy. I mean, I was just turned 19. He was probably 24, 25. You made rank young in Vietnam. Anyway, uh, he said, you want to be a machine gunner. Uh, an M60 machine gun weighs 26 pounds. It's not light. And you have an assistant gunner and an ammo bearer. But they, that gun always works. The, the, the downside being, you know, you got a machine gun and 
Yeah, a bigger target. <laughs> yeah, you're a target. They, they want to take you out. They want to take the radio operator out because that's communications. And they want to take the leaders out. So the, 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 the officers and the NCOs didn't wear any rank. So snipers couldn't pick them out. But anyway, he said to me, weighing both sides, and the M60 is the way to go. And nobody wanted the job. But I took it. And he also told me two more things. Uh, well, a, a, a couple of things, but the two things that stuck, he asked me if I had a, a girlfriend back at home. And I said, yeah, and it was Bridget. He said, break up with her. I'm looking at this guy. I mean, you know, you live for letters. Now, the uh, mail call from the real world. I mean, it's it's like it makes your day when the mail comes in. It doesn't come in every day, but when it finally gets to you, you get something from the outside world smell of perfume. I mean, it's just great. He said, you won't be focused. Uh, I'll never forget this guy. He said, wow. you got to be focused. He was a guy that was wounded six times. Jesus. On six different occasions. and kept coming back. I mean, obviously, they weren't severe wounds, but you still get hurt. And he always elected to come back to the unit, but he said, break up with your girlfriend and focus. If there's really a thing there, you'll be here again, you go back and she'll be waiting for you. If not, move on. And it was a tough decision, but I always listen to people who know more than I do, which I found out in life is most people. Right. But at least somebody who survived. Well, there. he was shot six times. Hello. Yeah, it's older than me. So I did that. And he also told me, and I got in a lot of trouble for this, but probably saved my life. Uh, the M60 is a big weapon. So as you are, uh, are listening, you know what I'm talking about, that we're in the military. It's a, it's a long weapon, it's it's an automatic weapon, and it's heavy. But the problem with is with it is its length. Uh, the barrel, I think, is uh, 16 inches. Uh, but you can't walk through that kind of terrain and foliage without it snagging on stuff. I mean, it was just aggravating. He said, saw off the barrel. He said, this is a government-issued weapon. <laughs> You see anybody here that's going to get you in any kind of trouble? It's just going to make your life easier, and it may save your life one day if you have to wield this thing quickly. Uh, because you weren't on a sling when it wasn't on its own tripod on the ground. Right. Uh, something happens, you don't have time to do that. You just have to use it. So I sorted it off, and I got turned in. But it was, it was toward the end of my time, and he just let it go. And the last thing he told me was, learn the culture these people whose, whose country were invading basically and i found that uh most of the vietnamese people didn't like uh americans and i understand why because we looked down on them we made fun of them i mean i know guys who would who would kill their livestock you know a farmer is a, a an agrarian society so a farmer would save up all his life to get a, an ox to pull his plow and uh, some GI would, would, would come along and want to see uh, the effect on an ox with a, uh, uh, a round from a grenade launcher and blow up the ox. Whoa. And, and you, know, you wonder why they hate us, why they give information to the enemy. And I always yeah. revered the Vietnamese. I think they were proud people. They've been fighting for over a thousand years. The Chinese, the Japanese, us, the French, they're very resilient, uh, and they have no air force. They have no artillery. This is the enemy, and they drove us out of the country. They just would not 
give up. Uh, and I, I learned the culture and I appreciate it. And one day, a kid saved my life, a little, a little Vietnamese boy. We were in an area where we were supposed to be looking out for the enemy, which is a very low profile, don't make any noise, only move at night type of thing. So the area was so infiltrated with, uh, with well, it could have been infiltrated with Viet Cong, whatever it was, but uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't move during the day and there, it was tough getting food to us. In the army, they try to get you one hot meal a day, even if you're out in the field. They couldn't get a hot meal to us. We'd have to eat sea rations, and they're terrible. Uh, you, you can just eat ham and lima beans for just so long before you want to throw up. So I spotted a banana tree at the, at the on the perimeter of this village, and I said, I'm going to get a bush of those bananas. I'm going to risk my life if I have to. Uh, I'm just going to go and, and snag a couple of bananas so we can all eat them. So... I crawled down to this village, the broad daylight, and it was this huge banana tree, thick with bananas. And I went to reach in. I wanted to have one for myself before I brought some back. And I reached in, and there was a little kid there. And I estimate, it's hard to tell with them because they're small people, but maybe eight or nine. And he slaps my hand away. And what well, you, you folks can't see unless you're watching this on uh, uh, YouTube, but he put his finger to his forehead. He did one of these. I said, what, what, what is this kid talking about? It's like he's poking himself in the forehead. And then he points into b between the bananas and there was a green snake in there. Oh, wow. Turned out to be the most deadly snake in Southeast Asia. Wow. It, it looked like a little toy. Oh my gosh. Like emerald green. I'll never forget it. Tiny little snake with a tiny little head. And he just kept on going, you know, showing me that if he hits you, if he strikes you, you're dead. He saved my life. Wow. If I was anybody else, it's I might have chased that kid away, get away from me. But right. I, I, you know, I figured he's there. Well, you know, save my life. Wow. That, uh, uh, that's, Sergeant Anthony, you know, I think about him a lot, but if for some reason I hesitate to find him, I can basically find anybody. And that's what I do for a living. <laughs> right. I, I never reached out for him. Uh, perhaps I will now. There you go. Sounds like you want to, subconsciously. I do, but I, I, I don't want to start talking about the old days. I mean, I belong to the Vietnam Veterans of America. Oh. They, 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 they call on me to speak over the years, and I don't want to do it. You, mm. know, so, you know, I thank them very much, but I don't do it. And who is your third? And before we get into that, oh, one please. more commercial? One more commercial, and we need this money, so I mean... Pay oh, attention yeah. to the commercial, please, and buy some products. <laughs> Be right <You> know back. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. And I'm so happy to be able to tell you tonight that we are expanding not only the show, not only how you can participate and share into so many different facets of my life and the life of this podcast and the world we created, we are going to expand our family. You're going to have an opportunity to actually join our family. And it'll be up to you how far you go in our family by the purchases of things we're putting out to you, um, the opportunities that you can take advantage of, like having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, having me visit your home while you have 10 people for dinner. This so many things that you're going to be so excited 
Just go to HollywoodGodfatherFamily.com and we'll have all the information you want. And believe me, I want you in my family. Don't let me come looking for you. All right, we're back to hear the third and final mentor of Patrick Picciarelli. I always wanted to write. Can you believe that, Gianni? That I can always wanted to write. Yeah, you're, not that I know you. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I was. What I found out tonight, though, I didn't know you never took a lesson how to write. I sat down and I and I wrote a book. Anyway, uh, it's always you know tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And I, I'm 48 years old at the time. I have never written anything other than a shopping list. I tomorrow, you know, I mean, I had plenty of plenty of material. I was a cop. Years and years, and I just never. Uh, never you, you just called on life's experiences. Anyway, there was a lieutenant where I worked. His name was uh, Whit J. Corners, C A U N I T Z. Those of you who like to read good police procedurals. Uh, he was an active lieutenant on the job. I was a sergeant. We worked in the same command. And I was a voracious reader, uh, as I mentioned. And I'd always have a book with me, always. And uh, we, we, we started to talk. By that time, he's a best-selling author. I mean, best-selling. New York Times best-selling author. He was still a lieutenant on the job. Are you kidding? Uh, wow. He lived on Sutton Place. Hello. That's I, impressive. I was, he was the first uh, writer from the NYPD to start writing fiction about the NYPD. He had an L.A. Uh, they, uh, they had their own version of it. Uh, there was a writer out there, but... Bill Cornish was the first East Coast cop to write about the NYPD, and he wrote about eight books, all all bestsellers, very wealthy guy. But he says, you know, you're, re you're reading an awful lot. Did you ever consider writing? I said, I've been considering it for 20 years. I just never get around to it. He said, most people don't. He said, well, why don't you put something together for me? Uh, then, you know, we had, we had worked something together in the precinct. He said, write about this. So I did. I fictionalized it and I, I read it and he said, this is not good because you're just starting out. He said, but you can write. You just don't know how to do it. You don't, you need practice. So I kept writing short stories for him and he would read. I said, the guy was, this is what you want if you're in the creative arts. Like you had Marlon Brando to tell you what to do. Right. Bill Cornitz was my Marlon Brando. The best of the best. Well, that's great. And I didn't want somebody telling me how good something was. I wanted somebody to tell me what needed to be improved. How can I do this better? Like when uh, Brando taught you the last scene when you were going to get killed in The Godfather. Right. Now, that's valuable information. Oh, yeah. So I, I kept on. I must have pumped out about a dozen short stories, and finally he gets one. And I tell you, he was he was a tough critic. And I loved it. I loved him for it. Uh, and we were good friends. Uh, he reads one of my short stories, and I'll never forget the title of this. It was called Hell Bent for Heather. If you heard the term Hell Bent for Leather, this was Hell Bent for Heather. It was a story about a, a guy who kills his girlfriend. But anyway, he reads this, and he says, you know, this doesn't suck very much. <laughs> The highest praise from William J. Cornitz, and I was so happy to, to hear that. He said, that's exactly what he said. And then I knew that I had a future in, in writing. Well, that's great. That's good. Bill Cornitz, uh, 
And you, do you know if he's alive yet? Well, he he passed away thirty years ago. He had wow. He was, he, had uh, he had lung problems. Not a smoker or anything. Just, Excuse me. Thirty just, years uh, ago. So that that's just as when you started writing. Then after that advice. <laughs> then. This yeah. Was in the eighties. Okay. And I, I after he passed away, I went to his funeral and they had all his books on his coffin. So sad. He's just a pleasant guy. But what a shame he never got to read one of your books after him I mentoring did, you. I dedicated my first book to him, Bloodshot Eyes. was dedicated to him. But on his casket, he had all his books. And it just, you know, one of those people, if I had not have met him, I don't think I would have had the, 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 the drive. He drove me. When I slowed down, he drove me. He yep. said, you can do getting better all the time. And he said, it isn't, you know, you're going to get published eventually because you write well. The people who don't get published who write well are the ones who quit. Uh, George Gallo, our guest. That, right. uh, you, if you recall, he said something similar. Yep, he did. Because it's very, very difficult to get published. I wrote three books, full-length books, before I hit with the publisher. Most people give up because it's work, as you know. I mean, oh, we slave. Yeah. I mean, it's it's work. It just don't pop out of thin air. But uh, I every time I thought of quitting and doing something else, I thought of coordinates. And uh, probably the, the person who had the most effect I've, as an adult uh, that I can think of. That's great. But, and I want to give a shout out to one other guy. His name was Phil Farrell. And when I got out of the academy, I, I had my first foot post with him because he always went out with the more experienced guy. And this is a, a guy that was probably not even 30, but he, he had a lot of experience. And the first thing he told me, the first day on the job on the street, he said, this is no job for an adult. <laughs> he said, <laughs> when, when you hit 20, which is you retire at half pay at the time, it's now, they changed it a bit, but when you hit 20 years, you'll be 41 years old or 42. He said, you got your whole life ahead of you. He said, have something. You don't have something, you'll be stuck here like all these other old crabby cops that you see because they got nowhere to go. They have no skills, no talent, never invested in a business, have kids in college. He said, plan your life. Study for civil service tests. Forget about being a detective. He said, study for civil service, make the money. When you hit 20, get out. The day I hit 20, the day. Really? Waters and said, there's my shield, goodbye. Well, and I, I never that. heard that. That's interesting. And I don't, I don't, I lost track of him too. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that, sir. Yes, thanks, Pat. That was. And now amazing. we're going to put you very on inspirational. The, we're going to put you on the spot. I think the next time we have a mentor well, situation. A no, I'm talking about even Megan to share for our young audience what's influencing her mm. in her life. At 24. I could do that. I could probably pull some. I'm sure you can. All right. We'll go for one more commercial break, and then we're going to do the mailbag. Be right back. Thank you. Hi. Patrick Picciarelli here. Before we get to our listeners' emails, a quick word about the new fiction book series I've launched. Private investigator Ray Yale tackles his first two cases in Bloodshot Eyes, and the pop line. 
Both books are in paperback and are available on Amazon.com. I've been a PI for 30 years, and these books are based on my cases. Enjoy. Okay, we're back. What do we got in the bag tonight? <laughs> All right, let's get into it. First is from Paul. Paul says, Gianni, there's a video on YouTube of an interview of you with Skip E. Lowe from 1993. Oh, my God. In it, he asks you about Sinatra, and you respond that you didn't really know him. You go on to say that he recently held your baby and that you've spent time with him, so you don't deny you knew him. But why did you say that you didn't really know him well? I, that's funny. I'm glad you asked that because I've asked that question so many times because people know my relationship with them just from the book alone, but even people in my normal life. There were times when we were told not to talk to Sinatra. <laughs> it happened three times in my life. Once he said it because he didn't want me to do The Godfather, and then the other two times, well, one was Costello, and then beyond that, then it got to be Chicago. And... Um, he falls out of grace sometimes till he and they did the crudest thing to Sinatra and I was saying like how do they control this man they were actually making reservations at the Fontainebleau hotel and because of who they were they'd give him the reservation and then not show up he'd walk on stage with 20 30 empty seats for him so he started to get the message. No, they, uh, fr fr they, you know, Frank was, a, as we know and you hear about, it was a tough cookie. But you don't play with the mob. They'll get to you. And they did a couple of times. So I was, I remember about that, that, that interview. I was a young kid, Jesus. One of my first interviews, I think. And um, he's, I, I said it, or said it somehow that I really didn't know him but uh, only to, to make myself look like a fool. But when they tell you, don't call the guy, don't talk to the guy, I don't do that. <laughs> and that's probably another reason I'm here. Exactly. All right, next is from Pat. Pat says, hi, Patrick. I've come to respect your work and your own personal story, which you have graciously shared with your audience. That being said, I've been reading some of your other works. I drive quite a bit and rely on audiobooks to keep myself sane while on the road. I recently listened to both The Hollywood Godfather and Street Warrior using the Audible product. Are you aware that those are the only two books that are available on Audible? I would really like to listen to Bloodshot Eyes. I've taken renewed interest in the Son of Sam killings, and it sounds like this particular book takes place in that setting. Maybe you can see if Audible can put some more of your works on its system. Lastly, I would appreciate any insider scoop you can offer regarding the Son of Sam, Sam killings. In hindsight, this case strikes me as a tremendous cover-up with an evil cult pulling the strings, but what do I know? Well, you should listen to episode, uh, what was that? We just covered that at length. Yeah, we did. Uh, uh, we, we spoke about that. There's a, a lot of theories, and some of them are valid, and the one that uh, I adhere to was he was involved in... Uh, for lack of a better term, a cult. It was more of a uh, pedophile ring. And I mean, we could talk for hours on this, but I, I agree that, uh, you know, put it this way, you go online, anybody who's listening to this show and look at the composites of the, of, of the shooters in some cases, tall, skinny guys with stringy hair, 
did not look like David Berkowitz. If it looked like anybody, it looked like Howard Stern, but he was doing something else that night. <laughs> <laughs> he was alibi. But no, there, there's there's quite a few theories on that. And yes, Bloodshot Eyes is uh, a fictionalized version involving a private investigator. Uh, I worked that case as a private investigator for Penthouse Magazine. You know, they do have articles, you know. Did you know Penthouse had articles, Gianni? Yeah, of course I do. No, I, I, I know Bob Guccione very well. Uh, I'm being facetious, you know. Oh. <laughs> Mostly, you know, it's always the pictures. They, they, in fact, their their articles won numerous prizes. They did good investigative reporting. And do, uh, do you I know, did, and I'm, while you're on that subject, I never looked at a girly magazine in my life. And I never read, so I never re- looked for the articles either. I just know of the magazines, like I knew Hef. He had a magazine. I knew Bob Guccione. He had a magazine. <laughs> but, yeah, that, that never did anything for me either. But when I got, <laughs> you know, hired at the it was a good paying job. I went, but I learned a lot about that case to answer the reader's question. And uh, if you want to, if you, well, you've already read Bloodshot Eyes. Why isn't it an audio book? The thing is rather old, out of print. I mean, it is still. I, uh, I just, uh, I have the rights to that book. Of course, I wrote it. But the so interesting I, thing, I, I can answer that question. Once the book is basically a year or two old, they're not going to invest doing an audio yeah, book. They're not. It's they're expensive not. To, to produce an audio book. Yep. Does it typically have to come at the same time as a print release? Well, I mean, while, while, print release? Well, I would say while their interest in you is high. I mean, okay. I, I know what they paid yeah. me to do my book. And it's a, it's a month of production. Yeah, they do, it in, they do it in a studio. They have a producer, a director. They, you know, sound yeah. effect. I was there four hours a day for 22 days. So. Yeah, to, to, to finish off the, the answer, it's never going to be an audio book unless I do it. Right. And it's it's uh, still for sale. It's, it's, it's out there, and uh, it's, it's, it's going to stay in print. It's either in print. I believe it's also an e-book, but don't, don't quote me on that. It might be. All right, moving on. All right, next is from Jeannie. She says, good morning to all of you. First things first, I was honored to be mentioned on your 100th episode. Thank you all, and specifically Pat. Oh, Jeannie, we like Jeannie. Yeah, Jeannie, Jeannie Ray. I truly love the podcast and talk about it all the time. Question, did Gianni go to the opening of the Mobster Museum? I know he was invited, but I thought he decided not to go. In one of your shows a while back, I thought he mentioned that he did go. Does he have any stories to share? Las Vegas is about a six-hour drive from where I live. I highly considered going. Years past, I saw the museum on my way out of town, and I've always wanted to go in, but it always seemed to be closed when I got that way. It may not be the same one. Thank you for getting my Wednesdays off to a great start. Let me clarify. I did not go to the opening of the Mob Museum. I did go when they invited us to feature our book after many years of it being open. And that's why I went. I, I wouldn't, I mean, the night I went was, I didn't realize it until I got there because I knew the, what the building was. And it used to be the old federal courthouse. And I never wanted to be in that building when I was there. <laughs> in fact, that was my- to stay out of there. That was my opening line. The place was packed, fortunately. Uh, I guess people wouldn't just see if I was showing up. But it was literally wall-to-wall people. So I said, How, what am I going to say when I walk out just to break the ice? So I walked on stage, and I saw a lot of friends and had eye contact. 
And I said, you know, I just realized it took 22 years for them to finally get me into this building. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And the whole room busted <laughs> out laughing, especially the people that knew me. <laughs> and the mayor was there, Oscar Goodman. It's funny. Anyway, moving on. Well, also from Jeannie, she oh. says, Gianni, I listened to the Missing in Alaska podcast a while back. In 1972, two congressmen, Hale Boggs and Nick Begich, vanish on a small plane. They're never found. Jerry Max Paisley married Peggy Begich and the widow of Nick Begich. Are you familiar with this story? As I listened, all I could think was, I want to ask Gianni about this. No, nothing about him, man. It was when uh, uh, oh, Hal, Hal Boggs was a very well-known United States senator. Uh, and there was rumors. Uh, they couldn't find the plane. To this day, they haven't found the plane. They haven't found the bodies. They haven't found anything. They were going from point A to point B and just vanished in the wilds of Alaska, gone. Uh, but understand there's like 20 to 40 plane crashes a year in Alaska, private, you know, private planes. And a lot of them they don't find. That's uh, uncharted territory for the most part. But there was a rumor going around that the mob may have had something to do with it. Oh, so, I see. With the planes? Wow. Yeah. You never heard anything about that, Johnny? Not a word. Nope. Yeah, what, me. What uh, year was that? I think 70. said 72. Oh, no. I was too consumed in a movie called The Godfather. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I heard it, yeah. That is true. You were busy with that. All right. Next is from John. John says, does Gianni have any knowledge or wild story about Francois Ruddy? She is the former wife of Godfather producer Al Ruddy. Al Ruddy she was listed as a producer of The Godfather in a documentary about a cult that moved from India to Oregon in the 1980s that's currently on Netflix. I just so know she was a great lady. Yeah, I, I, Al Ruddy, I mean, he talk about a Damon Runyon character. And then Francois, they, I, I think that was a short-lived marriage, if I remember. Because I, I got to know Al just because of who he was. And he was, and, and funny, Al was staying at his mother's apartment in on 57th Street on the west side when he came here. Al used to just sleep on everybody's couch, never went for a dime. And they were so successful. And he always reminded me of Abe Lincoln. He's about... Six foot four, looks like Abe Lincoln. But Francois, she was always a mystique about that woman. I don't know. But the people who knew her loved her. I never had the privilege of, I met her once or twice, but that was it. All right. Also from John, he says, in Gianni's opinion, who deserves more credit for making The Godfather, Al Ruddy or Robert Evans? Uh, I would think Bobby Evans because he was the president. Uh, Al Ruddy, I mean, owned the property. He was the executive producer. And he brought it to them, and then they got so involved in it that, uh, but Bobby Evans, I think, because of the powers of being, and then, you know, most people don't know it, a guy called Charlie Blue Dawn, just about seven months prior, bought Paramount, and he owned Gulf and Western. And, um, the fact that that first movie was a mob movie in itself was a miracle that it was made knowing that Gulf and Western was the production company because they were very mobbed up. But I, I would say Bobby Evans, 
carried the carried the ball over the over the finish line to get it made done, and it, it did well. Fortunately, we all know that now. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> where would I be if that movie wasn't done? All right, next one is from Sebastian. Can you ask Gianni, please, if he ever met Hyman Larner and if Leo Mosseri was the killer of Marilyn Monroe? P.S. Johnny Weissmuller, who played Tarzan, was my great uncle, and I was always told he was a fan of Gianni's. I think he was friends with Sammy Davis Jr. Johnny Weissmuller, you mean? Yeah. Well, I know Johnny Weissmuller. Everybody knew him. Played Tarzan. He was Miss America, Mr. America too. No, I mean, uh, I, I can't talk about the death of Marilyn Monroe for many, many reasons. And uh, it... Um, you know, it's it's a very difficult conversation to have after the four years of what I had with her as a friend. So, I mean, there's so many theories about who killed Marilyn. I just know it was Bobby Kennedy. He had it done, not that he did it physically, but he ordered it. Hmm. How about um, Hyman Larner? Did nope. you ever meet? Nope. And I didn't meet the other great doctor either. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> All right. Next one is from Susan. Very much enjoy your podcast, especially during the pandemic, and loved the book. Question. Can you talk about Jerry Lewis? I read that he could be difficult and was not nice to his first, first family, but he could be sentimental and generous at times. Jerry Lewis was a bum. You asked the right guy. Tell us how you really feel. I knew him really well. Jerry Lewis, I mean, you know what? I, I, the greatest story I could, uh, to define Jerry Lewis, his brother-in-law created a company along with Jerry because he had to be arm's length. It was a relative. I want to say it was his brother-in-law. They owned the advertising company for muscular dystrophy. So when Jerry Lewis to cry at the end, of each show was because they didn't make enough money yet. <laughs> they yeah, took, Megan, they took aware, millions and millions of Jerry, Go ahead, I'm sorry. Jerry Lewis would have, a, would have the muscular dystrophy telethon every year. And every year he wanted to uh, uh, make more money than the previous year. It was a call-in donation thing that went on. How many hours did that thing go on? 24 hours. 24 straight hours. Yeah. He was... 24 straight hours until he got too old or he made too much money. But he gave the impression that he was do donating his time for free. But as Gianni said, that's a different story. No, they all got paid. Oh, okay. Oh, major he money. Said, major when died, money. When he died, he had written all his kids out of his will. Oh, yeah. Every one of them. Very pleasant guy. He, his last... Yeah, he sounds great. His last yeah. wife, he has a little girl with her. And that's who got everything. No, his, I mean, his sons, I mean, they, they hate him. And, and they should. Yeah. No, he was not a nice guy at all. Moving on. Let's talk positive. All right, last, last one for tonight, also from Susan. She says, if you could meet Frank Costello now, what would you say to him? Do you think you were like a son figure to him? Thank you so much for your time. P.S. I'm very inspired by your yes, you can message. Well, let me just tell you, if I saw Frank Costello right now, I'd just give him a hug. I mean, he turned my life around. There's nothing to say to Frank Costello. 
and, and, and I could never hug him in public, so that's what I'd like to do. Give him a hug. He, he made my life what it is yet. I'm still living in his apartment, okay? <laughs> or one of them. Okay, there's a wrap. That's a wrap. Well, another great show. Thank you all for tuning in. Please tell your friends. Tell them to give reviews. We have something coming up very shortly. We've been teasing you with it, that we're going to increase our family. And I think you're all going to enjoy it and all want to be a part of it. That'll be happening in the next. When you hear this show, it'll be happening. God bless you all. <laughs> Good night. Good night, Pat. Good night, guys. Good night, Good night buddy. Bye. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night. Welcome to Feinstein's. I love being here, man. It's so much fun.